Well, there is a beautifully devastating story in the Bible. And it's about a guy named Job. And Job loves God. And he's got this awesome life, a life that I think that a lot of our friends and family, a lot of people in the West would be pretty proud of for him, but also pretty envious of. I mean, he's got money, he's got family, he's got security, he's got freedom. God seems to shine his favor upon him. And he seems to also get this perfect balance of, of prosperity, but also devoted faithfulness. You know, he's held up in scripture as a really faithful man of God. But one day Job's life is completely turned upside down. It's completely destroyed. And we as readers get to see this disturbing conversation that goes on between God and the devil. Where Job becomes, <clears throat> excuse me, this guinea pig, this experiment to see what will he do under the impact of suffering, of loss, of pain. And so the question is posed, how will Job, this faithful man, live now without his comfortable and pleasant lifestyle? How will he love God in the midst of pain and loss? Can he? Is it possible? Most of you will have heard of Brene Brown and her fame for being a shame expert. And I've often heard her joke about the consequences of, of choosing such a de depressing topic to be an expert on and how that leads into her conversations with people. And I'm not claiming to be an expert in this at all, but in my final year of training at Kerry College, we had to do an undergraduate level research project. And the topic I chose was suffering, or more specifically, our perceptions of suffering, how we respond to suffering. It intrigued me, and since then has intrigued me, to hear and to reflect on the ways that we talk about suffering in the West, the ways we talk about ideal living in the West, and the ways that we tend to doubt and reject God based on the suffering that we see around us or that we experience in our own lives. It would seem that the Western world, impacted by the advances of medicine and technology, captivated by ideas of independence and individualism, the West, when we're so familiar with things like control and security and safety, the Western world, places like New Zealand, places like Wellington, have a really interesting perspective of suffering, of pain, in comparison to other places around the world that perhaps aren't so developed. We avoid it. We are obsessed with avoiding it. And so how do, we, how do we do that? How are we consumed with this avoidance of, of suffering, of pain, of running a mile away from it, of building walls up around ourselves so we don't have to deal with it? I mean, you look at something like medicine, and how we use medicine. Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm not claiming to be in the know too much around this area. But, but looking at the narrative around medicine, there's this fundamental focus around the avoidance of pain. We're just talking about pain medication this morning. You know, in medicine, we keep people from death as long as possible. And often at the cost of quality of life, of the, their own quality of life, but also their family, their community, the people around them, their relationships. I've also reflected on how we do engage with day-to-day -day physical pain. 
And the aim being to numb the pain, to be able to continue in our lives uninterrupted by what pain receptors are telling us. Because pain receptors are communicators, right? They're letting us know what's going on in our bodies. They're trying to have a conversation with us about what's going wrong to enable health and well-being. A doctor um, I was reading reflected on his work with people with leprosy, where their pain receptors in their extremities are going. They don't have the cues, the warnings that pain provides and end up causing huge damage to their hands and feet and other parts of their body because there's no communication from that part of their body to the brain. And yet, here we are, or me at least, we numb, we numb our pain. We numb the pain which is telling us that our bodies are just exhausted, that our lifestyle needs to change, that our stress levels are teetering us towards burnout. We numb our pain that is telling us our expectations around ourselves, around others, are unsustainable. And there are lots of ways that we avoid suffering. Fear is a key um, catalyst for, for avoiding suffering. Think about the suffering of our young people and parents are, I think, increasingly consumed by fear for their children, to keep them from pain, keep them from hurt. One blog post I read when Adley was a baby was advising parents to stop telling their kids to be careful, stop telling them to watch out, to increase caution and anxiety in these young people. A youth expert I was talking to was saying that while adults today are increasingly worried the most worried they've ever been about the reckless things our young people will be getting up to. Apparently the opposite is actually true. Our young people are considered the most anxious and risk adverse generation. We are failing to teach our young people how to engage with crisis and not to avoid it to tell them a different story with the way we live our lives, to tell one another a different story about being courageous, about walking toward discomfort, about being vulnerable, about being exposed, about being human, about making mistakes, about saying sorry as a big person and not just as a kid. We avoid the mundane pains of life, the crucial and confrontational conversations, the, the sacrifice that comes with long-term relationships. We take the paths of least resistance over and over. We avoid entering spaces that are unpreferred or uncomfortable for my personality type. We live in a society where the narrative we're told, the narrative we're telling one another, is fundamentally about being happy and comfortable. And to do that in a, in a way that you and the undiscovered you wants to do it best. You choose your life. You choose it. And then protect it. In the West, there's this huge emphasis on insurance, the responsibility that you have to insure your things and yourself and even your leisure activities. The story we know is that pouring masses of money into insurance is a non-negotiable. It's a no-brainer. However, giving to someone in need who doesn't have the basics, well, you know, that's negotiable. Our story is about being happy and comfortable. You know, back in the day in the 17th century, one of the key narratives for the church was to be friends with God. The chief end of man, the Westminster, the Westminster Catechism says, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
nothing about using time and money and energy to build these little happy utopian paradises for ourselves. And yet still, even in these man-made utopias, we suffer. We experience suffering. And suffering is hard. Suffering is horrific. And we don't have to look long at the scriptures to realize that God totally gets how hard and horrific suffering is. It's my uh, soapbox. Jesus Christ, the divine becoming flesh, to live with people consumed by self-centeredness, to serve them, to love them as they abuse and betray him, and even in the moments when they slay him, suffering is but the door through to something more, more life, more prosperity, more health for person and community. Pain is the warning that the enemy will not win that there is an end to this parasite of sin. Suffering marks transition. The slain lamb, the lion, he who ushers shalom in to a world desperate for restoration, for glorious transformation. See, while we hungrily pounce from one happiness to the next, our souls are actually really just desperate to be transformed from glory to glory, to to deny these twisted stories within and around us and to hope in the true story of God who is reconciling all things, remaking us as we are meant to be. And that story, that story of the slain lamb, the Lord, our high priest of Hebrews, tells a really different narrative around the place of suffering, around what suffering is about here on earth. Suffering and pain is unavoidable. It's part of this life. And the scriptures, the narrative of the gospel tell us that one day it will be no more. I saw this picture on Facebook this week of a guy, um, you know, a depressing kind of scene, and there's this text there saying, this too shall pass. It may pass like a kidney stone, but it will pass. So rather than us getting all settled into life as we know it now, fluffing up our our cushions of paradise, earning good money, having a good job, getting our kids into the best opportunities possible, being independent and not needing to rely on anyone else, rather than pouring life and energy into those things and being distracted then by the lies and the fears that come along with them, we, the church, have a really different way to live in this broken world. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5, he says this, Keep a cool head. Stay alert. The devil is poised to pounce and would like nothing better than to catch you napping. Keep your guard up. You're not the only ones plunged into these hard times. It's the same with Christians all over the world. So keep a firm grip on the faith. The suffering won't last forever. It won't be long before this generous God who has great plans for us in Christ will have you put together and on your feet for good. He gets the last word. There are so many different experiences of suffering and I don't know most of any of your stories around that. There are stories of suffering around persecution or or choosing to live against the grain, the grain of society or the grain of your own desires. 
They're suffering from just the inevitable realities of being human. I mean, as Job reaches the end of, of this confronting dance he has with God, he discovers two things. One, how much bigger God is than he thought. And secondly, how much smaller he is as a mere human. And so when it comes to suffering and pain, and I think it's fair to say we've been through a, a good amount of that ourselves as well, the conversation I'm keen to have in my own life and in conversations with others is not why do we suffer or why is there suffering, but how can we suffer well? How do we live in this space well, in our smallness as mere humans who know Christ? How can we love God? How do we love others in this reality? So that's a question that I'd love for you to ponder as well over the week. Um, I've got a few kind of thoughts where I've, where I've got to so far with that. Three things that, that are really important for suffering well. One is honest lament. One is resilient hope. And the other, stubborn solidarity. We, we need to lament. I mean, Phil was talking about the Psalms before, and the Psalms are full of lament. And as you read Job's cries throughout the book, they're full of grief and lament. And there's no shame in grieving and moaning and complaining. And lots of you are aware, um, as Phil was saying, these last few months, Mark and I have been sort of transitioning. Um, we've sensed the call, or sensed the call late last year to leave our community, to sell our home, which I still feel a little bit sad about, and to step into the wild possibilities of the unknown. We, we haven't known what that looks like. And, and you know that's exciting, but I think you can um, probably empathise with the fact that also not having any plans of your own is pretty daunting. Um, plans, you know, help you feel so safe and secure. They give you an answer to that identity-divining question we have in our society of what do you do or what will you be doing? And, and so I thought it was important as I talk about lament that you guys have a little bit of a, a glimpse at behind the scenes for us. I've, a few of you have asked how we've been coping, and I hope I've said something along the lines of, you know, some days are hard or we have our moments. Um, and one of my moments... I wrote these words. Today, I feel like faithfulness sucks. A chasm of misery. A lonely existence. No structure or order. No systems to fall on. Just being. Not doing. Just listening. Not knowing. Well, this being, she's chaos. This brain is anything but a space of perfect zen or chi or whatever the heck it's meant to be. No, but it's got heartache from too much anxiety. These chains of trust don't make me feel that free. Faithfulness seems like damn hard work to me. A soul-sucking reality. How in your mighty name can I simply be? And what on earth is that even meant to look like? Surely this is far from what you have in mind. Anger, impatience, a pattern I do not like, a trajectory of depression, of someone deeply dissatisfied. Surely this isn't right. Faithfulness to an ever-present Christ. And then the next moment, the next morning, these words sung in my mind over and over and over again. I choose to trust, not because there's anything in me that wants to, 
but because I must. I choose to trust, not because I want to, but because I must. A commentator named Samuel Ballantyne, he reflects on Job's struggle with God in the face of suffering. And he says, Job dares to hope that God is as committed to the truth about suffering as he is. That God is as committed about suffering as he is. Eugene Peterson reminds that throughout history, the psalmists, the prophets, the priests, they didn't busy themselves with coming up with cures for suffering, but with offering their anguish to God in prayer. The suffering of these people, it drove them to pour their energy into longing for the kingdom of God to come, joining God in his longing for things to be the way they're meant to be. And so to suffer well, I think it requires us to, to grieve, to lament, to moan, to complain, to call out and be utterly unsatisfied with the things that shouldn't be. I think we can find ourselves in moments of life that, that feel utterly heartbreaking and soul-destroying. But then to add bacteria to our sores, the stories that interlock and create our worldviews are one that intensify and distort pain. There are narratives that tell us that we should expect to be happy all the time, that we should want for nothing, that we are entitled to build comfortable lifestyles. And so the need to, to sorry, and so needing others feels foolish, and, and struggle feels shameful. And to hope for something more, something beyond this moment, feels naive. And suffering when we are at our most vulnerable place and our guards are down, that's when we need hope. We need to have the story of God's mission and love already etched in our hearts, already there, so that nothing can water it down. I think it might sound strange, but I think we need to prepare our hope for suffering. To, to train it, to train our hope, to plan for when suffering will happen. To know that we live in the real world where the enemy is real and prowling around waiting to pounce on our moments of weakness. Taking half-truths that we think and believe and then twisting them. Pushing on our insecurities and fattening them up to become toxic. Because that's what he does, right? That's what Satan does. And he's good at it. In the wilderness, that's what he's doing to Jesus. He's distorting truth. He's pressing on sore spots in Jesus' moment of exhaustion and pain. And how does Jesus respond in that? What narrative does Jesus call on? What story does he retell himself? So honest cement, resilient hope, and stubborn solidarity. Stubborn solidarity is this commitment to do these things together, to walk together in all moments of life. You guys will have probably heard of the redwood forests and the, the roots of redwoods being very shallow and exposed. And as they reach towards the heights of the heaven, their roots interlock with one another, and that's what keeps them stable. That's what keeps them upright, completely dependent on one another. And so we need to be together. We need to walk together, even if it's just simply being present. You know, when we're present in each other's suffering, we, we defeat one of the key narratives that goes on, the story of loneliness, of being alone, and just being present 
just, sorry, just being present allows that loneliness that intensifies and distorts pain to be broken. I was watching a movie the other day and two strangers, they meet on the road and they're heading in the same direction and one of them suggests, hey, why don't we walk together? Like we can walk on the other side of the road and we don't even have to talk. It's quite nice walking with someone not talking, they say. You know, once you get your feet right. It's a cool picture, I think, of what it looks like to suffer well. Allowing for that little bit of awkwardness as you learn to get your feet right. And so being together, stubborn solidarity is preoccupied with relationship, being with, and allowing nothing to break that. Unlike Job's friends who become all consumed with solving his problems, with squashing out his lament and his search for truth in the midst of everything, they walk away from him, they are beyond him or apart from him. And as we've been here with Mosaic, I've loved watching how you guys Consciously build togetherness. And I think that takes courage. Brené Brown talks about the partnership between courageousness and vulnerability. That it's only the brave ones who allow people to truly know them. It's only the brave ones who allow themselves to need others. And so what I've seen you guys doing is courageously developing muscle memory for community. And so when pain strikes, when suffering strikes, the hope is that's when the muscle memory will kick in. That that's when we will default to being drawn together and not becoming isolated and not starting to feel less important to the community as if suffering somehow makes us have less to contribute to the body. It doesn't. The one who suffers propels the whole community toward dissatisfaction with the here and now, propels the community to seek out the kingdom of God in their midst, to pick it against the evil that allows suffering to multiply freely. The one who suffers in community has the ability, the calling, to challenge the futile things that we place our hope in. They draw our eyes back to the gospel, to the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so as we walk this journey of life in this world that is broken, where suffering is a thing, a big thing. One of the key questions for me, and yeah, I'd be keen to hear your thoughts over the coming week or whenever around how can we suffer well? How can we, the, the body of the risen Lord who has defeated darkness, how do we suffer well? I'm going to um, get Phil to play a song in a moment just um, which sort of reflects on these ideas a bit. It's a, a song by Chris Tomlin. He's sort of facilitating a conversation with the choir of the church and asking um, them questions to that they respond to, where they acknowledge this is what we live in, when they acknowledge this is the hope that we have, and they acknowledge, um, yeah, who Jesus is. Uh, and that's sort of, I guess, the dance that I'm talking about when it comes to suffering well. And if Music's not really your thing. Got a couple of questions as well for you just to ponder. One is, um, yeah, this idea, how can we suffer well? What are some other ways um, that we can suffer well as people of God? And the other question is, how do you suffer now? What is your pattern of suffering now? How do you approach pain and loss now? Thanks, Phil.